relies upon. It's about what your heart believes about how the world works, what's dependable in the world, what is not dependable. Uh, in 1994, um, a guy called David Wells made an assessment of the state of the church. And it, it still makes me shudder when I hear it today. This is what he said in 1994. He said, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. As a, the, God, God doesn't really make a difference to where it really matters. The truth of God is in the background and everything else just piles in, clamoring for our attention, our, our work life, our home life, our, our struggles, our, our distractions, our leisure life. We pour our attention into these things and we go on from, from day to day and even from year to year and God is kind of weightless in our decision-making. The things that make us glad and the things that make us groan somehow are severed from God and who he is. Whatever is shaping our lives, it is not God. He rests inconsequentially. Now, we might protest as we hear that. You might want to kick back against it a little bit. Um, but that's why we hold up the mirror of Scripture to ourselves to help understand ourselves better. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at this part of Isaiah. Our next section in Isaiah is chapter 3. Uh, Isaiah is bringing the message of God to the people of Judah. And at this point, um, it's the, kind of towards the end of the reign of King Uzziah, uh, middle of the 8th century BC, a time of, of stability, of prosperity. It was a time when trust in the Lord was diluted, being diluted with a, an illusion of self-sufficiency that success can bring. When, when we're successful and life is going well, we think that we can manage without God, and that's what's happening for these people. Uh, what I suggest is happening in this little bit of Isaiah, chapter 2 to 4, is the beginning of chapter 2, that the Lord puts before his people that his promise of a glorious future, a great tomorrow when everything will be put right. Uh, but then he, he jumps in the rest of chapter 2 to speak about the fall of the proud. He does that again in our section. His target is, is the pride of the people. But then he's going to round it up and when we come to Isaiah next time, again to look ahead to the glorious tomorrow, the great future that God is promising for his people. You see, what God wants to do, he wants to, to draw out from his people a saving faith. He wants them to trust him. Um, and in order to do that, he, he puts this contrast, this great glorious tomorrow in contrast to what will happen if they keep relying on themselves. Chapter 3, then, is the second section that aims to dismantle this pride that has become endemic in the nation. Uh, our passage breaks into a couple of sections. Um, verses 1 to 15 is exposing the, the folly, the foolishness of rejecting the Lord for human leadership. You might notice, if you've got it in front of you, that the verse 1 gives this title for who God is. He is the Lord, the Lord Almighty. An exalted title that's repeated again in verse 15, kind of wrapping up that section. Uh, and then verse 16 into chapter 4, verse 1, is exposing the folly of rejecting the Lord for luxuries. Those are the two targets, leadership and luxuries. Uh, and, and that second section is just a, a further example of where people might go when they go from the Lord. 
Uh, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, it begins, See now. And under that is a connection word, a word which ties it into chapter 2. A chapter 2 that begins by setting out that amazing future. And then that great call, which in a sense kind of undergirds everything that's happening. Verse 5, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us order our lives under the brightness of that stunning tomorrow. Chapter 2 ends in verse 22 saying, stop trusting in mere humans. If we are to walk in the light of the Lord, our trust has to be moved from people to God. And it's that kind of reliance on people that moves us into chapter 3. Chapter 3 declares what the Lord will do. And it will be um, a bit like the game of Jenga. You ever played the game of Jenga? You have wooden bricks and you build a tower. Take it in turns to take bricks from the bottom and add them to the top. Well, well, there comes a point in the game of Jenga when one row has just one brick in it. The whole tower rests upon that brick and you cannot touch that brick. If you move that brick, everything falls down. Well, what the Lord is about to do is to take away that brick. That's what verse 1 is saying. See now, the Lord Almighty, the, the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. It's, it's expressing the totality of what they are relying on. What, what is, is in view here is this society that has it's kind of eliminated its need for the Lord. God rests inconsequentially upon them. And in place of the Lord, they have turned to other things for support. It's a society that leans heavily, but its leaning is away from God. God is going to come and he's going he's to kick away that support. He's going to remove it and it will all come tumbling down. You see, Isaiah, he's done it before. He brings our attention to who God is with this great title. He is the Lord the Lord Almighty. This is the, the sovereign and self-sufficient majesty. This is God who, from whom, through whom, and for whom are all things. And so to him, um, to him alone must be all the glory. There isn't room for another to come into his place. He will not be squeezed off his throne. The chapter 2 said it, verse 11 and 17, that the Lord, the Lord alone will be exalted. You see, if we have an idea of God where that God can somehow rest inconsequentially upon our lives, that's not the God of the Bible. If we have a, an idea of God that doesn't define the significance of everything that we are, if we have an idea of God that does not dominate every dynamic of our lives, then that God is a fiction, an idol. It's something we have made up to ensure that we can retain control. It's not the God who we deal with in the Bible, not the God who reveals himself to us. It is instead, it is the Lord, the Lord Almighty, and he is about to take away the supports. And that's the link between the two parts of the passage. Uh, in verse 1, it says the Lord is about to take away. And then the, the same word is repeated in verse 18 when it says, In that day the Lord will snatch away. Both parts of our passage are about the Lord removing the supports. And yet you have to just think, and as we hear this, how would these people feel as this message came to them? We might ask ourselves, how would we feel if, if the message came to us that the Lord was going to remove everything we relied upon? How, how well would that go down with us? I suspect it wouldn't go down, down very well at all, would it? We don't like the idea of something upsetting the way things are. 
I guess, a, a substance abuser, a, a, a drug addict, would, would probably complain vigorously if their supply was going to get cut off. They might think that the person removing the supply was against them. But that's kind of the nature of sin. Sin wants to deceive us. So, so the things that we replace God with in our lives become too precious to us. They become too significant. And any threat to them feels like we are under attack when it might just be that we are under rescue. In Isaiah 3, the Lord is going to take away supply and support from Jerusalem and Judah. What is that for them? What, what was their issue? Well, let's have a look. The, the Lord will remove the supports. Uh, verses 1 to 15, he will remove leadership. That's what he says in verse 2. This is what the Lord will remove. Look there in verse 2. The hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, the skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. The whole of leadership in that society, the political leaders, the military leaders, the religious leaders, the economic leaders, skilled craftsmen, the kind of the builder or the plumber you go to for advice and for help, or, or even the clever enchanters, those experts in charms who can, can use their skill to somehow ward off the evil spirits and manipulate the idols. It's a picture of leadership that covers all the bases. Now, now leadership, of course, is a good thing. But here it has become a take-the-place-of-God thing, trusting in mere humans. It was a society that had no need for the Lord because they have it covered. It's not hard to imagine a society like that, is it, for us? A, a society where life is organized without a need for reference to God. A society where God rests inconsequentially because we have managed by our cleverness and our structures and our, our, our human means to eliminate the need for the Almighty. And personally, it's not that hard to imagine a life, living a life where you just don't have a, a, a need for God. You know, in, in the real practical day-to-day -day stuff, we can talk about God, we can, we can come to church and sing about him, but actually in the real stuff of life, we don't really need God. We've got other places to go to. Now, that's an illusion, of course, but it's an illusion that sucks us in and the Lord will remove this false support. That's the first section. The second section, verse 16 onwards, is the Lord will remove the luxuries. Verse 16 talks about the women of Zion who are haughty. Our attention comes to the wealthy women of Jerusalem and that they're driven by haughtiness. They are self-engrossed. And how does that self-engrossedness work out? Well, it says they are walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. What these women do, everything they do is to get attention for themselves. They're exhibitionists. Their proud heart is even seen in the way they walk down the street. They are the look-at-me women. And they haven't got a need for the Lord because they are fueled by the attention they draw from those around them. Now, verses 18 to 23 gives an astonishingly detailed description of these women. Uh, yesterday, I went with the boys to the Fitzwilliam Museum in, in Cambridge to try and look for some of these examples from that kind of time period. There, there are some things you can see of, this, of the things mentioned in this list. Finery, bangles, headbands. That's likely to be a sun disc that you would wear on your head, a kind of pagan symbol. Just like the crescent necklaces were pagan symbols. 
But there's earrings and bracelets and veils and headdresses, anklets, sashes, perfume bottles, charms, signet rings, nose rings, fine robes, capes, cloaks, purses, mirrors, linen garments, tiaras, shawls. It's a great list, a long list, to give the impression of the great extravagance of it. There is an abundance of possessions, even the pagan charms to ward off the evil spirits. These women, they're so self-absorbed, they're self-obsessed, image-conscious. It's not so much that they have eliminated the need for the Lord, they have drowned out the need with their excessive luxury. Now, Isaiah is doing more than just singling out the wealthy women. In verse 16, literally, he calls them the daughters of Zion. Then in verse 25, he says, Your men will fall by the sword, the gates of Zion will lament. There he is switched from talking about the daughters to the mother, the city of Jerusalem. You see, these haughty, self-engrossed women are an example of the whole of that society. Not, Not that luxury itself is the target, but it's the arrogant heart that drives it. It's the idea that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. Your life consists in the attention you can get from others. This is a, a society that has it, numbed its spiritual senses with a thousand luxuries. So if we hold up this section as a mirror to ourselves, I wonder what it would reveal. Now might it be that God rests inconsequentially upon us because we buy that lie that our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. Or or the lie that our life comes from the attention we can get from others. Is it the case for us that we act, maybe even subconsciously, but act in a way where we're always trying to get attention to ourselves? Like these ancient women, the way we hold ourselves, the way we look, the way we walk, we, we want the attention, we crave the attention, we feed on the attention. Uh, last time I mentioned C.S. Lewis's test to find how proud you are. If you, if you want to find out how proud you are, you need to ask, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me? These women in Jerusalem, when no one comments on their picture or their post, when no one notices them, when people don't act like the world circles around them, these women, they do not like it at all. They are haughty, self-engrossed. But then what about us? Have we, in a similar way, numbed our spiritual senses? Well, the Lord will remove this false support. The Lord will remove leadership and luxury from Jerusalem, taking away the supports, and so the whole will come tumbling down. And the passage tells us not just that the Lord will take it away, but what will happen when it does, and why. The effects and the reasons. And so let's consider that. What are the effects when the support is taken away? When the Lord removes that Jenga block and the tower comes down, what will it be like? Well, what will happen when the false support of luxury is removed in the second part? See, verse 17 begins with a therefore. It's directly connected to the haughtiness in verse 16. Here is the consequence. The Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion the Lord will make their scalps bald. The very thing that was the, the, the manifestation of their pride will become the point of their shame. Verse 18, the Lord will snatch away. He will take away the support. And the result in verse 24 will be an awful exchange. See that exchange pattern in verse 24. 
The trappings of excess and luxury will be replaced by a display of captivity and mourning. Instead of beauty, there will be branding. The ease of their life of self-indulgence lost to sorrow. Everything they were using to make themselves look important will be taken. They'll be undone at the very point of their pride. And the city will be overrun. The men defeated in battle. So many men lost that in verse 1 of chapter 4, the ratio will be seven women to one man, all of them desperate for disgrace to be removed. These are a people who have not reckoned with the Lord, the Lord Almighty. They have forgotten it is the sovereign Lord who holds their fate and not mere humans. With their, their self-engrossment, their denying of God in their pride. It's all just an illusion. They cannot exist for a moment without the upholding hand of God. But when he moves his hand, the pieces fall and the fall is awful. And then when the false support of leadership is removed, what happens? The first part of our passage, verse 4 says, the people get the leader's they deserve. God says, I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them and the result will be chaos and anarchy. Verse 5, people will oppress each other. Everybody will be against everyone. There's no order. There's no restraint. And in verse 6, they'll be desperate for leadership. They'll say to someone, you've got a coat. That's, that, that's enough. You, you can be the leader. So it's a ridiculous qualification for leadership. And, and the answer will be, I haven't got a coat and I have no remedy. And that's the bit that bites. I have no remedy, literally. I am no healer. It's the same word that was used back in chapter 1, verse 6, which describes the, the, the nation as a, a sick body covered with sores that are not being treated. But chapter 3, verse 6, again, I have no remedy. I have no solution. I am no healer. There is no one who has an answer to the problems of the nation. Isaiah goes a step further with the leaders. See, see, the reality for the leadership in this society is that the leaders are already useless and abusive. Verse 12, see verse 12, it's speaking before the supporters were taken away, before the leaders are removed. This is how the Lord describes the leadership. Youths oppress my people Women rule over them. My people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. The leading classes compared to youths and women. Unfit for leading. The reference to women probably sounds a bit harsh for us. It could be simply plugging into the prevailing attitude of the time, exposing how the men are not leading right. It could be for these people a reference to Queen Athalia, um, she would still be in their memory as a, a queen over this nation who caused great trouble. Um, or it could just be a mistranslation. You know, lots of options. But the point is that, that the leaders and the guides are misguiding. Verses 14 and 15 put the situation kind of more graphically. Now, the, the Lord says they have ruined his vineyard. Now, and under that is, is a true view of leadership. Now, leadership, leadership at all levels is meant to be responsibility, stewardship, like tenants in a vineyard who organize and cultivate for the benefit of others. But these leaders who are really no leaders, and they're no leaders because it says the plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? It's leadership. It's rotten to the core. It's imploding upon itself. These leaders are unfit for leading 
because they use their position to abuse, to crush, to serve their own interests. A leadership is a gift which is so easily misused. And we see that today, don't we? At every level, in, in government, in business, in families, in churches. Leaders who use their position for personal gain at the expense of those they're meant to serve. Now this indictment that the Lord brings against leaders in ancient Jerusalem, it, it feels very up to date, doesn't it? When we look how leadership is malformed around us. Or, or even in our own little spheres of influence, how leadership is misused. Now, I wonder if we hold this passage up as a mirror to our lives, where does it prod us? It's a warning. Stop trusting mere humans. If you keep trusting mere humans, if you keep cutting God out, sooner or later the false support you rely on will be removed and it will all come crashing down. So, so where does it prod you? Where does it challenge you? Uh, I wonder if you just, you just sit here and you think, I, I just struggle to see how God really connects with everyday life. Now, I, I go through the motions of life at school or work or at home, whatever it is I'm doing, and just the truth of God, it just seems distant to what really matters, to the things that really occupy me. Now, if that's the case, it may well be that you've been sucked into the same illusion as these ancient people. Relying on mere humans, the need for God cut out, at least cut out from the important things. We keep God kind of safely managed away from the things that matter. Or, or it might be for you that you've bought into that lie that life consists in the abundance of your possessions. It's the stuff, you just obsess about stuff all the time and, and appearance and, then, and what others are thinking. It's always about what others are thinking, craving attention like a drug. It's, it's self-engrossed, it's all about me. Well, the message of Isaiah 3 is that the Lord is going to remove the false supports, every one of them, and the effect will be devastating. But we do want to wonder why. Now, why would the Lord do this? Our well, passage, I think, gives us four reasons for why the Lord would do this. The first one, maybe, is obvious. It's because of sin. That's so what verse 8 says. If you look at verse 8, Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling, their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Verse 8 again begins with a connecting word. It's the reason the Lord is removing the false supports. It's because those false supports are just a cover for a deeper rebellion. Uh, these people are set against the Lord and they're blatant about it. They don't care. There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. They're not trying to hide it. They're just against God. But verse 8 is telling us what the essence of sin is. Sin is against the Lord and defying his glorious presence. We shouldn't think about sin in abstract terms as sin is doing wrong. Sin is always in the Bible relational. It's always against God. And it's because the heart of sin is pride. Refusing to let God be God and trying to take God's place where we decide what is right or what is wrong for us, what is best for us, what we will do. Because really we are putting ourselves against God and we defy his glorious presence as we do. 
Now imagine you have a, a precious ornament made for you by someone special and it just means the world to you. And, and one day you have a visitor to your house and you, you tell them about this ornament and how much it means to you and the person picks it up and they look at it and maybe even they smile a little on their face as they throw it to the ground and then stamp the pieces into the floor. Now what would you think? Who, who, no one would be so brazen as to do something like that, would they? And, and yeah, that's really what sin is, as it's described here. Taking the things God hates and rubbing them in his face. The, the words and the deeds unfit for his beauty. A sin parades those things before him. That's what it means to defy his glorious presence. But we struggle to see it like that. We think of sin as, as abstract or as unimportant or even as unseen. But it is none of those things God sees. He sees the heart. He sees every word. He sees every deed. And he sees that it is all a declaration of independence from God. And it is so silly, isn't it, when you put it like that? Independent from God. Independent from the one who made all things, who holds all things, who is the ultimate end and purpose of all things. Now, our independence is, is folly. And it will be stopped. Now, God removes the false supports because of sin. The second reason is because of justice. Look at the end of verse 9. They have brought disaster upon themselves. What does that mean? Well, verse 10. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. That's the principle of justice. What you have dealt out will be dealt back to you. It's completely fair. And so verse 13, the Lord takes his place in court. The Lord enters into judgment. The Lord is the one who will ensure that what we have done will be done to us. No, these leaders who grind the faces of the poor, what they have dealt will be dealt back. See, there's a, a boomerang quality to sin. Uh, what you do will come back to you. That, that's why it says they have brought disaster upon themselves. And somebody could hear that and think, well, okay, that's, that's kind of a relief actually because I, I think I could probably handle that. I look at how I live my life, I could probably... I could probably deal with it. But they would, of course, be forgetting that Isaiah has just said that sin is rebelling against the Lord. At, at its root, all sin is a rejection of God. So to be dealt back would be God's rejection of us. And God removes the false supports because of justice. But there is more. More to why God is doing it. And we must press a little deeper. I think the third reason is desperation. Now, now, both parts of our passage show the outcome of what the Lord does is a cry of desperation. And when that false support of leadership is removed, what's going to happen? Well, in verse 6, they will be desperate for leadership. A, a rudderless nation is a chaotic nation and, and uh, full of anarchy. And, and in verse 6, they say, anyone will do if he's got a coat. Now that will do. But he hasn't got a coat and he won't do. They're desperate for someone to lead. Uh, and when the false support of luxury is removed, what will happen? Well, chapter 4, verse 1 takes us to a terrible time. Uh, Post-invasion, after the war, the numbers of men decimated in the battle. And in that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, 
We'll provide our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. Desperation. They're covered in shame. They're desperate for anybody to take away the disgrace. You know, if these people refuse to repent when they hear this message, the Lord will remove their false support and bring them to a point of desperation. He will bring them to this point where they will see most clearly their true position. When the illusions will be shattered and the lies exposed. God is removing the false support to bring these people to a real, a true realization of their need. And see the emptiness of trusting mere humans. Because there's something more to see. Why would the Lord do all of this? Compassion. In verse 9, as God announces his judgment on those who rebel against him, in the midst he says, woe to them. And that word woe, my dictionary tells me, is an impassioned expression of grief. An impassioned expression of grief. God's heart, as it were, is, is torn over these people who bring disaster on themselves. And more strikingly, in verse 11, it says, woe to the wicked. God grieving over the wicked. These people who parade their sin before him, they rub their rebellion in his face. The people whom the Lord will rise in judgment against, the people whom the Lord will make fall, he considers it all and he grieves over them. Now we must allow God to be all that he reveals himself to be. God is full of justice and anger at sinners and he is no less full of compassion and sorrow at the disaster he brings on the wicked. But we've seen this already in Isaiah and we will see it again. This is the, the same heart of God that when God in flesh approached the city of Jerusalem and, and approached that city with its rebellion and its sin and he knew he would bring his judgment upon it. He looked at the city and the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 19 wept over it as grief poured from his holy heart. The same heart we find in Isaiah 3.11 that says, Woe! To the wicked. And then I don't know if you noticed in verse 12. Twice the Lord calls them my people. Uh, I don't know whether you heard it in verse 15 as God cries out. What do you mean by crushing my people? The Lord's love is, is pouring out as he sees his people oppressed and crushed. And he rises to defend them. It's like a, a good father, a perfect father who sees one of his children in danger and rushes with all his might to defend. But of course, there's no one innocent here. When the Lord grieves over the wicked and rises to defend his precious people, it's the same compassion. The same people are wicked and wonderful to him. The same people are deserving of his punishment and drawing his compassion. And so if we are to hold this passage up as a mirror to ourselves, we must not miss this. Now, as our passage may prod us, revealing how inconsequentially God rests on us, as we may reflect on how we have eliminated our need for God and pushed him to the back and sucked into the illusions of the godless world in which we live, as our passage prods our self-obsession, how we buy into the lie that life consists in the abundance of our possessions or the number of likes we get or the, the attention that we crave, all the ways we keep trusting mere humans. As this passage shows, 
that our sin is against God and it is blatant and it is without excuse and he rises in judgment against us. As we see all of that, let us not miss that the passage also shows that the Lord God grieves over our sin and that we both deserve his punishment and his compassion is drawn to us in our helpless state. See, it is a great mercy of God when we are brought to a point of desperation. It is the mercy of God when all other helps are seen for the emptiness that they are and every other support crumbles and we abandon hope. And many of us will testify to times in our lives when we are brought to that point of desperation. When everything else has failed, we look around and there is nothing to rely on. It's a point of mercy when we are brought to a point of desperation, when we are desperate, desperate for a leader who did not come to be served, but to serve. A true leader. Desperate for a leader who will not say, I have no remedy. But desperate for a leader who will say, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the remedy. And I lay my life down so that you may be healed. Now why would the Lord remove the supports? Ultimately, it's to prepare the way for Jesus to come so often how the Lord works in our lives, brings us to our knees so we might understand better how much we need Jesus. How much, we might understand better how much Jesus is the leader who will not fail us. He's a leader who will not come to take from us, but he, he will come to give, to give everything for us. Not a leader who crushes and grinds our faces but a leader who was crushed and ground for us and when the women in Jerusalem cry in desperation for someone to take away their disgrace the only one who can truly answer that is the Lord Jesus now these women like all people they're lathered with the shame of their sin brought to a point where it cannot be covered or hidden anymore. All they can do is cry for someone, someone to take it away. And it is mercy when we are brought to that moment of truth. Mercy when we are brought to a point when we know we cannot remove our own disgrace. We cannot take away our sin. It is stuck to our souls. But all we can do is cry for someone to come and take it from us. And so Christ came. He who had no disgrace who lived in perfection through and through, and yet chose to lift our disgrace, chose to carry it and put it on himself and take it into death and leave it there, and then rise again to offer to us the reward of his suffering, so that he replies to the cry of verse 1 and says, I have taken away your disgrace. That boomerang quality to sin, that what you do comes back to you and brings disaster. Jesus came to stand in the way, so that when our sin was dealt back to us, he would stand in the way. That he would get his cross in the way, so that what was coming back to us would come to him. And that disaster that that should have engulfed us, would engulf him. Because he is the true leader. He is the best leader. He is the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we come to a close, why not ask yourself, would you really want 
the Lord Jesus Christ to be of no consequence to you? Would you want to live your life as though he did not matter? Or would you ask Jesus to move away all your false supports, take away all your empty hopes, and ask him to lead you, ask him to take away your disgrace, and seek that he may rest with every consequence upon your life. Come. Come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's take a moment just to speak in the quiet of your heart to the Lord and to bring to him what's going on there.